From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. And one of the cops said, you're Irish. And I said, I am. He said, you're from Dublin. I said, yes. He said, you're the talk show guy. I said, now hang on. Is this a setup? What? Well, who is this guy? Are you looking forward to the coronation? Well, oh, I'm incandescent with uh, electrification. You know, you're in the back of the car and you're in your shorts and your brother or sister's skin is touching off you. Da, da, da. Skin's touching off me! Skin's touching off me! Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, the talk show guy's adventures in New York City. The rain is not falling in Spain. And the best songs to sing along to in the car. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's... You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. The musings on the news, or musings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show began with Ryan telling us what he was up to while Oliver Callan was minding the shop. I went to see, uh, quite recently, uh, to New York. And I got to see uh, Bono's new show, his book show, if you want to call it that, about his... It, it, I, I don't know if you've heard about it or if you've seen it. He gets up on stage. It was the Beacon Theatre, beautiful theatre in, in the Upper West Side in New York City. And he stands up and he tells... It's kind of excerpts of his book. And as he's talking, the screen behind him becomes alive and there's writing uh, as he's talking and his words are coming out like written words behind. It's quite magical. And he has an amazing cellist, which is one of my favourite instruments, and a harpist, and then a DJ to provide what I presume, excuse my lack of knowledge, but beats or what have you, to, to uh, add a sense of atmosphere to the whole thing. And it's just incredible. It feels like, it felt like it's watching, I presume what it was like to see, say, Charles Dickens once upon a time on stage telling a story. And it's his own life story, talking mostly about, an awful lot about his mother and his father and uh, their relationships, or lack of on occasion, and uh, and the band, you too. Um, and it was about two hours. As soon as he came on stage, he got a standing ovation. The thing was completely sold out for whatever night it's done. And um, as the show ended, another massive standing ovation. So it just a great production and pretty much an Irish crew all around him, um, all excellent. Uh, and um, he's a master of reinvention. That's the truth of it. Uh, so I was delighted to, to see that in, in real life. I missed it in Dublin because it was on the toy show week, so I couldn't get to see it. But uh, in New York, probably had another friss on altogether because he loves America and America loves him. And it was just, it was a, it was a humdinger of a gig. One of the best things I've seen on, on this stage ever, in fact. Um, so if you do get a chance to get a ticket for that show, if it ever returns, get, get along. It was really quite something. We need to know what else Ryan was up to in New York City, don't we? Indeed we do. One of the mornings, I was only there for 48 hours, but one of the mornings I went, I was going down to do some, a little bit of research on a history thing, that plan that I have. And I wanted to get to, towards Ellis Island. So from Midtown Manhattan to Ellis Island, you got to get the subway. You can get a taxi, but I prefer a subway. It's more interesting, more interesting to see the people, people watching. Anthropologically, get into the bowels of the city and watch. Fascinating. So down the... Steps I went and the crack of, well, crack of dawn, half eight, nine o'clock in the morning. And I, I was a bit on, I was on my own, so I was a little uncertain as to whether I, I was going in the right direction. So I saw two cops standing on the platform and I said to the cops, uh, excuse me, am I going in the right direction for uh, the downtown area? And they said, yeah, you sure are. And one of the cops said, you're Irish. And I said, I am. He said, you're from Dublin. I said, yes. He said, 
you're the talk show guy. I said, now, hang on. Is this a setup? What? Well, who is this guy? I said, what? How, how would you know that? He said, I'm from Galway. I said, you're not. Now, take, bear in mind, we're now in the underground, the subway of New York City, a beautiful spring-ish morning up, up, upstairs. And here's this cop who says he's from Galway. I said, are you from, the, what part of Galway? He said, I'm from the city. He said, my mum, and I could hear the tiny lilt. He said, I'm here 30 years as a cop. I could hear the lilt in his voice. He said, my mum, my mum was born on the Aran Islands. I said, my, this, I was, now my head was melting. He Aran Islands to, you know, Manhattan. This is amazing. Yeah, she was born on the biggest, on Ninishmore in Aran. My kid got married there last summer. I said, great. And he pointed to his badge. He said, well, I didn't get a Galway name. He was in, he was in O'Reardon. Cop called O'Reardon. From Galway originally. Mother from the Aran Islands. Gets, I get stopped by, well, near to, soon to be ex Chacho guy from Ireland, who says to him, "Am I in the right place?" I just thought I was amazed. Just the the Irish story, globally, is just intriguing. But my my mind was blown to meet this guy, in you know, under the ground, heading down. As I was going to do a story, as I was going to research a bit of a story about Ireland's. Um, history if you like and, and, and the world and the scattering and the movement of us as a people it's just fascinating well if the talk show guy says it it's got to be true right and a guest that the talk show guy interviewed once died this week Jerry Springer died he was uh, a guest of ours on the Late Late Show 200 years ago when I was when I was I must have been about 10 when I was presenting it at that stage um, what do you know about Jerry Springer I wonder let's have a look the, the New York Times obituary uh, tells us that Jerry Springer got a law degree from Northwestern University in 1968. Uh, started on a political career. He won election to the Cincinnati City Council in 1971. Now, he was born in the UK, in London, in an underground station that was being used as a bomb shelter during World War II. And the family went to the States uh, when he was five and he got a degree in political science, but then went on to do law Took a little time off to work for Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. Of course, Kennedy assassinated that year in 1968. So Springer goes back to, to uh, college, gets elected to the city council in Cincinnati. Resigned in 1974 after he was found to have written a cheque for prostitution services at Kentucky Massage Parlour, which he then used uh, as against himself, if you like, because he was re-elected to the council in 1975 and one of his comeback speeches nodded to the prostitution controversy. He said, a lot of you don't know anything about me, but I'll tell you one thing you do know, my credit is good. And that was, that was of course, in 1975. He was elected mayor of Cincinnati. I mean, that's resilience in 1977. And then he ran for governor of Ohio, but he finished third in the primary. So he was, he was nowhere near it and decided to get into TV. Uh, let's face it, he did a bit of news anchoring uh, but the Jerry Springer show came along in 1991. And actually, let's bring in the, uh, my chat with him then, because that's where I was asking him, did, did he like uh, did he like being the, the presenter of this bizarre show, this daytime television show that would never uh, make the light of day today? 
But uh, when it did, it certainly made a splash. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Do you... Well, I enjoy doing it. I think the show is stupid. It, it's an escape. I mean, it's, it's not a serious show. We're not dealing with real issues. Uh, in the first couple of years, we had the Klan on. Yes. And uh, that fight that you saw, by the way, was the first time there was ever a fight on the show. Okay. That's when we were still serious. We had no security there. You know, whoever heard of a fight at a talk show? And we were scared to death. I mean, there literally was a riot there for about 15 minutes. Right. No security, people calling for help. You know, we all assumed the show's finished. We were all going to prison. Who knows what? But, yeah. uh, and uh, so from then on, we had security. But the, that's when the show was serious. And then the only decision I ever made with the show was the decision to make it go young, yeah. which meant young people in the audience, young people on stage, young subject matter. Well, young people are much wilder in their lives. They're much more open. They're sure. much crazier. And that's when the show started to go crazy. NBC Universal bought us and said, from now on, you're only allowed to do crazy. Yeah. So this is true. If you call us with a warm, uplifting story, we're not allowed to run it. We have to send it to another show. They are. That's uh, Jerry Springer talking to me on The Late Late Show. Um, not, I, I, I seem to remember the, the, the crowd got into a chant of Jerry, Jerry, when he came on, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he, what, so he, the, the show included items on worshipping the Lord with snakes. Um, 1995 featured a young man named Raymond, according to the New York Times this morning. Raymond, who Mr. Springer was helping to lose his virginity, offering him five young women hidden by a screen to choose from. And Raymond's friend Woody accompanied him. And then as Woody and Raymond were looking at the screen, a, a ticker came up on the, below for people at home, which read, Woody doesn't know it. His 18-year-old virgin sister is one of the contestants. Jesus. How did they? Anyway, um, it, it was a phenomenon. Um, it's not going to be happening today. So don't, don't, don't melt down. It's, it's gone now. It's all gone. And, uh, and Jerry Springer with it. He featured on Married with Children, Roseanne, The X-Files, largely playing himself. Because he was a cultural, a pop cultural phenomenon too. Uh, and he was on Dancing with the Stars as a contestant. The Masked Singer hosted America's Got Talent. And among his last interviews, he said, pray for me. If I get to heaven, we're all going. And that's Jerry Springer, who died uh, the last, uh, in the last 24 hours. And the clip I played was from him on The Late Late Show in 2012. Ryan, reminiscing about that time, Jerry Springer, who died this week, came on The Late Late Show. And what better place to end the musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, from this morning's Ryan Tuberty Show. More and more farmers in the Irish vegetable sector are leaving because, they say, it's just not viable anymore. Today with Claire Byrne reporter Evelyn O'Rourke has been out and about talking to them, as she told Claire. The statistics around this really are pretty bleak. When you look at the figures around the commercial vegetable growth sector, you know, it's becoming a dwindling population. They tell me, and I love this phrase, back at the turn of the century, which is only 2000, uh, there are around 400 full-time growers. And now over 20 years later, that figure has shrunk to between 80 and 100, with just about 25 of them growing the vast majority of the produce on the shelves. But in that time, growers say pressure on prices has been the leading issue, with discounts on vegetables being used by supermarkets, as we know, to entice customers in. And they're saying this is damaging them. There's an RT1 TV show at the moment, Food Matters, presented by the well-known grow-it-yourself. I'm going to call him Guru, Michael Kelly. Always has mud in his hands. He's been exploring all the issues around food. And really, he, they focused on the vegetable sector in particular. That was explored. And it was pretty bleak stuff, you know. So I got to talk to Michael Kelly, who's that presenter, uh, to tell me a little bit more and ask him about the pressures and the threats facing this industry. 
All of the science is telling us that we should be eating more veg for health and the health of the planet. It should be Irish horticulture's moment in the sun and instead it looks like it's Armageddon. You know, we sort of feel about our own veg, like cabbage and all that, you know, that it's not terribly sexy and it's not a superfood. If anything, I'd love to ban that phrase because it's so ridiculous, like this idea that an avocado produced in South America is more healthful for you than, than cabbage or kale or broccoli or cauliflower or parsnips, but I think it's not right. I think we have to call that out instead of thinking about avocado good cabbage bad think is cabbage a or carrot a more nutritious because of the soil it was grown in and how long ago it was picked so what you're saying is look right the avocado back. ain't the answer the avocado ain't the answer i'd ban avocado on toast if i had that on the word smashed avocado. yeah exactly smash some broad beans instead but growers their energy costs have gone through the roof massive massive increase in, in input costs like the price of fertilizer has gone through the roof and obviously it doesn't take a genius to figure out that those two things just can't continue you know decrease in income and increase in costs and the result is they're leaving the industry in their droves and we featured one commercial veg grower one of the biggest cabbage growers in the state unfortunately closed up his business last year in response to that so i think there's something really worrying about our own food security our ability to access local food we're really losing out as consumers we're importing you know huge quantities of veg from holland and spain and we all know the extreme cases of that beans from Kenya and things that we can grow perfectly well here but we're not because of the economics of it. I think that's a tragedy for us. Not only is it terrible for Irish jobs and the sector, I think as consumers we're losing out. The 99 cent bag of carrots for example. Obviously it's great that we can get cheap veg but there's a cost for that down the line. I think all the stakeholders in this problem have a role to play. I think government has a role to play. It's doing something very important here at home. I think absolutely the retailers have a role to play. To me real superfood is something that's grown in living soil in our community that we eat straight away fresh from the soil. I'm glad he explained that because I complain every week I grumble under my breath when I see green things in the supermarket that we should be able to grow here but they've been flown in from halfway around the world. Now you went along Evelyn to visit one of the leading vegetable growers in the country Brophy Produce in Nace in County Kildare. Yes Claire, you haven't lived till you've stood in a polytunnel looking at three quarter million broccoli stems <laughs> at the moment I went down to visit him he's been producing vegetables there for over 40 years he says look I started small he expanded and he currently produces is mainly broccoli, some white and red cabbage. And he is by any stretch the so-called broccoli king of Ireland, as he's the largest one here, uh, producing probably 75% of total supermarket requirements. He supplies most of the stuff for Dunn's, Aldi Centre, along with Tesco and Lidl as well. And he was chairman of the IFA horticulture branch for four years. Look, this all sounds impressive, and it is, but he also is gravely concerned. He says there are only two other serious growers you know, with packing facilities supplying the other 25% of the market. He says the colleagues in the industry, that they're ageing, they're under pressure, and concerned. So here Paul Brophy was hard at work on the farm when I arrived to his incredibly impressive operation. I think this is 80 metres long and it's 10 metres. Nearly a million There's almost a million in this, yeah. So there's some plants wrong in these. They're coming through, not true to type. It's what's known in the term as a sib. We have people just that are experts at it and they just walk it and they look for the wrong ones. Even with all the technology, it's still so labour-intensive, isn't it? Well, it's nature. And nature naturally produces different strains and it's all the time trying to evolve and develop. The seed that we would use would be graded to within 0.2 of a millimetre. What you need is consistency. We want consistency and that's what we're aiming for in here. Our normal planting in the fields start around Patrick's Day and we plant a succession every week 
right through until about the end of July and that gives us harvestable broccoli from about the 15th of June until the 15th of November. Now because we didn't get out till about the 8th or 10th of April because it was too wet to travel on the land we won't have broccoli now until about the 25th of June. 34 successive sowings of broccoli here over a period of many months and that's to give us a sort of a 22 week supply of product for the Irish season and outside of that you can't produce it here it has to be brought in from Spain or wherever. So obviously some people are generational farmers right Mm. they got handed the business down and they're bailing. Yeah there's a case I know of and there's two brothers and one is closer to retirement but they've both decided when one goes the other's going to go because the complexities of running the business for a person on their own is is so difficult. So many aspects your food safety your staff your inputs and the pressures that are on you and a lot of people just feel they can't do it on their own so young people look at it and say to go into it it's impossible costs to start it from zero. Business changed around 1997 when Tesco bought out the Quinsworth Group and we saw central distribution come in. They awarded contracts to growers to produce a crop for them and we all became specialists in lettuce and celery and brassicas, the green vegetables and I suppose the discounters snuck in under the the mainstream supermarkets. They saw they could target you know unbranded products like vegetables and use them to get a footfall but you have to ask the question is where's this going? So Paul there and Michael, who we heard earlier on, they're concerned about the pressures on the producers. So they want us, the consumers, to realise this and to act. Yeah, I mean, they say the numbers are confirming that you know it's rapidly diminishing as a sector with less than 90 vegetable producers at the scale that the industry should have. And they say trends, of course, are a big thing, that Irish consumers may be moving away from the traditional veg, the turnip and the cauliflower, but we need education in schools. The poor old avocado, as you heard, came in for a bit of a hammering there, Claire. They both think we need to get real about the food decisions we are making in supermarkets. Do we want to just import everything? Do we want to support local? And how much longer can we justify spending the 99 cent or whatever on the carrots? And they point out that things like the beast from the east a few years ago demonstrated how fragile our food chain is. Do we really want to rely on all the imports, you know? But they say with costs like fertiliser, for example, having gone up by 300%, inflation is a huge issue too. But here Paul and Michael outlined more of their views in more detail. There's something about local food and the feedback we always get in GOI from people who grow their own food is that it tastes different. Like the freshness, as soon as you pick something out of the ground, starting to rot, right? So the sooner you eat it, better. That's <laughs> quite a stark image, of course. Yeah, but it's, that's what's going to happen. You know what happen. you're doing. So if you can eat it like within hours or days of it being picked, it's just going to taste different and it's nutritionally, it's more replete. And if we can eat veg close to source as possible, then I think we're getting a much more delicious, nutritious product and as well. So I think as consumers, we're losing out as always in these things we've got power to vote with our wallets and seek out Irish produce unless we do that I think we're going to turn around five years time and go where's all the Irish veg gone that's vegetable grower Paul ending Evelyn O'Rourke's report on this morning's today with Claire Byrne Joe Duffy was on location in appropriately enough the King's County this afternoon to celebrate the upcoming coronation of Britain's King Charles III and he started the programme by talking to Royal Adjacent MP Jacob Rees-Mogg. Jacob Rees-Mogg, I know you've been over in Borcastle and are you looking forward to the coronation? Well, I'm incandescent with uh, electrification. And what is the plan for today? For today, or for the day? For the day, sorry, well, it's my we Dublin accent. Well, begin with His Majesty swearing a solemn oath yes. in Westminster. 
He shall take the orb in one hand, the scepter in the other. Yeah, and then we shall walk down Whitehall to Trafalgar Square. Perambulate. Indeed, perambulate there, yes. uh, where a list of traitors' names shall be read out. Traitors? Yes, indeed, followed by the beheading of Meghan Markle. <laughs> Sorry, that's, 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 that, that's, I'm getting my fantasy life confused oh, with reality. Yeah. Um, will you be making, um, will you be making, um, will you be making, will you be making a coronation quiche? I shall indeed, no, actually I won't. Nanny will be making that. But you're looking forward to it? I'm absolutely aphoric okay. with enthusiasm. Okay, and also beside you here, because he is Uktar on the head and Michael D. Higgins, I've just taken your... Microphone, so we need another microphone up here, ASAP. Ugtaran, uh, welcome, welcome to Tullamore uh, Court Hotel here in the King's County. Uh, you've, you've had a very, very, very busy uh, month with the visit of President Joe Biden to Orson Ugtaran. Can you, yes. the most powerful man in the world, yes. waiting, we saw it on the television, waiting at the front door of yours. What was going through your head? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what was going through my head. <laughs> Uh, he was over an hour late, so he was Joe. And I said, if he doesn't arrive here in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to town for the pension. <laughs> and he can sit on the doorstep, because I will not wait for people. And that Jeb, Jacob's Biscuit Mog, or whatever you call him. Mother of God, I never heard such muck in all my life. But surely, surely, Uchtaran, meeting the most powerful man in the world, coming to Oris yes. Uchtaran, give, give our listeners an idea of what you were what you were anticipating, oh. like, what were you looking forward to? What was going through your mind? What was coursing through your cerebellum? Can I have a cup of tea until you finish? <laughs> I'll tell you what was going Oh, Joe, you have no idea. I was so excited. i tell you, Joe, it was like waiting for Santa Claus the night before Christmas. My heart was racing. And of course, on a state occasion like this, you, he, the President of the United States, he would present you with a gift on behalf of the 330 million American people. Well, well can you tell us what, what that gift was, Uchtana? I was, I was so disappointed. <laughs> I'll tell you what it was. A fart of a fridge magnet. <laughs> with Biden for President 2024. And a lemon Swiss roll. And Jesus, I hate lemon. <laughs> If it was only a chocolate one. I was all geared, Joe, I was geared up for a fortnight in the White House with access to leisure facilities and B&B &B and dinners and everything like that. And what, can I ask you, what did you present to President Biden on behalf of the Irish people, five million of us? Between ourselves, Joe, I do okay. not want this broadcast. No, you're fine. I deny no, it. I'll tell you, I had an Easter egg left over and I said to myself, <sighs> wouldn't that be all right for him? And I ran into all different types of difficulties with it. A few days, Joe, before the visit, there was seven or eight fellas in trench coats and dark glasses turned up at the front door. They said they wanted to do a sweep in the house. I was full sure, Joe, it was the cleaners <laughs> to spruce the place up. So I gave them sweeping brushes and dusters and a hoover. And it turned out it was, what do you call them, crowd? The FBI or the FAI, I don't, or the IFA, I'm not too sure who it was. Jeez, they uh, left the place in a tip. Joe, they searched me. No. They nearly no. looked up a certain department to see was my backbone straight. 
Oh my God Almighty! And they questioned me about the uh, how what I intended to present to uh, President Biden and who would make the presentation. And I told them that I wanted to make this different from a very stale presentation. Yes. So I I I, I had asked uh, Pat Rabbit, Porik Makankonyan, you know. <laughs> to dress up as the Easter Bunny <laughs> and to make a presentation of the Easter Bunny. And that was unique, and I wanted to do well, that on behalf well, of the well, Irish okay. people. Uh, what was the Secret Service reaction to that? They would not hear tell of it. They said the Easter Bunny in the Easter Egg. They said, no, no, no. They said it was a security risk. They said that Pat Rabbit, he could pose a threat, you see. He might have myxomatosis. <laughs> and then... They brought in the CIA or the ICA or the ICMS. I don't know who, the, they brought in someone, and I'm not sure. And then they blew up the Easter egg in a controlled explosion. It was, it was, there was cream and egg all over the place. And then they sat down in a circle, the whole lot of them, and ate it. Well, we know, we, well, we know now that his itinerary was extraordinarily tight, but the, the rumour is that he... That he stayed overnight in the Auris. Can you confirm that one way or the other? A or nay? Neil yeah, or Tom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yes no, or no, no. If it went to Hawkeye, it was, it was a thaw. <laughs> yes, it was a thaw, so it was, sure. Yes, he stayed overnight and we were there. We're in the sitting room. I should be in the sitting room. And I was drinking Jemison. I was lord in it. And he was there drinking my waddy. <laughs> And I, I fell asleep, Joe, no. in the middle of all this, and I no. had the most unusual dream. Mother and of would God. You, would, you, would you share, given the bank holiday, holiday atmosphere, would you share the dream? Oh, I would, I would. I, I was, I, I was I, dreading I, that. Yeah. Uh, um, Hui <laughs> Merkel, I went to sleep. And yeah. In the dream, Joe, I produced a, mu a musical called Biden and the Beast. <laughs> And I was begging him to give me a spin in the beast. And reluctantly, he said that he would. I was dying for a spin in this car, Joe. And he was driving, and Eamon Ryan was in the back of the beast. And he, he, Eamon Ryan was cycling round in circles on the back seats. I was. We were flying. I'd say, Joe, we were doing the ton. So we were. Honest to God. And at one stage, I said to Joe Biden, I said, what would you get out or to the gallon? And he says, you get 20 gallons to the mile. <laughs> We were doing wheelies and donuts, and we came round this spin, Joe, and the bend was that sharp, I was looking into the back of my own neck. <laughs> and next thing we started singing, Joe, the Saw Doctor song, you know, I wish I was on the M50, stone walls and M and Ryan is green. And before I knew it, Joe Biden went straight through a red light in this, no. and who pulled us over, Joe? <laughs> Only the... What did the commissioner of the Guardian, Richard Harris, or whatever you call him? <laughs> and he asked Joe Biden, he asked him, he said, Why didn't you stop at the red light? And Joe was quick as wings, says, oh, uh, He says, Ah, when you see one, you see them all. <laughs> I was mortified, I thought I'd end up in Port Leash. But I presume, when you woke up, I presume the following morning you. Uh... You had breakfast. What did you say? A walking breakfast? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. well I was working and he was having the breakfast because I had to prepare the breakfast for him, so I had. Uchter on the Heron, Michael D. Higgins, regaling Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line with his adventures with US President Joe Biden. And yes, today was Funny Friday. The great Jessie Buckley was on the Ryan Tuberty show this morning and the Oscar-nominated actress and singer began by talking to Ryan about her charity work. 
Matt Talbot Trust is where you're at here. What is it and what's your role with it? Um, the Matt Talbot is a community education programme in, mm. in the centre of Ballyfermot. Um, it's, a place, it's a place of refuge for people who need an open door and who are going through, you know, hard times. Mm-hmm. And not just people who are dealing with addiction, but also the families are, are you know, involved with these uh, people who need a little help. And I had an uncle who used the services and kind of would... Um, I mean, we would have all been lost without Matt Talbot. It's run by this incredible woman called Gronia. And the work that they do there is just incredible. And the people in there are so full of heart. They've become such good friends. I've known them my whole life, this building. Mm. And um, in 2018, their building was burnt down. And I think you don't really realize the impact of what something like that has on a community like Ballyfermot, which relies on these support houses for so many of them. Um, So for the last few years, we've been doing everything we can to raise funds to help them rebuild their new building. Um, And one of their uh, uh, ex-people used to use the place, Pat Kern, recently was on Culture Night, and he's this most... uh, And they have such a wide variety of an education program to help people be rehabilitated out of prison or through drugs or whatever, but they use art and education, and it's just... It's an incredible place and um, I feel very, very proud to be part of it in any small bit. Okay, so there's there's people who are in contact with the criminal justice system, which is all over the news at the moment for overcrowding and, and people with mental health issues who really should be in the mental hospital, the central mental hospital, but are actually stuck in prison and that they're people on mattresses. Like, the place is a bit, sounds chaotic. So this is a, a halfway house of sorts where people who are pre-court or maybe post-prison release come in a drug-free environment and I suppose what are, are, are greeted with warmth and understanding and the listening ear. Yeah, and an opportunity to change and have a different chapter in your life. You okay. know, um, it's easy to put people to the side when it kind of is painful for us, but everybody comes from somewhere and this is a place which allows people to imagine another life for themselves Mm. and um, to give them an opportunity through education and through community, really, to um, make that happen for themselves. And I've seen it happen time and time again. Um, And, you know, any one of us could be in that situation. None of us are removed from that being our reality. And I'm sure as hell know that I would go knocking on that door if I was in that situation and know that there'd be somebody on the other side to open their arms to me because I've seen that happen. <laughs> so what, what happened with you? Don't, don't need, you don't need to get into huge detail, but you mentioned your uncle and addiction um, and, then, and therefore you. So give us the sort of the practical coalface uh, experience you had, Jesse, that, that allowed you to get uh, such an insight into the building and the people. Um, well, my uncle uh, suffered with addiction mm-hmm. and with alcoholism and was homeless uh, throughout his life, on and off and in and out of the prison system. But he was such a huge part of my life growing up and mm. somebody that I learned a lot from because you recognize how fragile humanity is. And nobody chooses that life. You know, lots of people end up in that situation because of a lot of 
different circumstances throughout their lives. And I think what I learned from my incredible parents, but also from the Matt Talbot and also from my uncle, was to um, have empathy and understanding and walk towards people who are in that situation instead of turning away because um, it's too uncomfortable. Um, And I'm so grateful. He taught me so much. Yeah. in in that in life and I'm so grateful because I've made amazing relationships out of that when you see that it doesn't matter where I was addiction doesn't know background education wallet doesn't care if it's going to get you it's going to get you and and when you see at a young age the way you saw it I'm convinced it equips you and the children and nieces and nephews of people with addiction with a certain I'd, I'd say empathy but certainly an ability to to, to, to confront it re- more realistically head on when you see it uh, as an adult than you might have had if you hadn't experienced it? Uh, I, I, think, I think people have the, peca- uh, the capacity to see things whenever in life, you know, at whatever age. Like, I don't think it has to be just as a child or mm. when you're 60, you know. I think life is full of interruptions and sometimes they're hard. <laughs> mm. And you have to kind of find a way... None of us can do anything without others in our lives. I certainly can't. There's no way I could be where I am today without people helping me in my life in different ways, in my own hard times and in my own good times as well. Um, And I think that's what, uh, I guess, any of those experiences, I guess, focus what that is because you're dealing with people who are trying to survive at the kind of highest place. And what this Matt Talbot does is through an education and a support and that it, it does it in a way that is nurturing you know mm. it's like grassroots kind of it's like gardening you know you plant something that you didn't know you could plant and then it goes to be a big tall tree and it's yeah. bloody beautiful yeah <laughs> lovely no I, 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 I do a little bit of work with uh, Tiglin my friends and Tiglin Aubrey and friends and you see it straight away that most of the, the men and women there most of them have a story to tell in terms of their own childhood that suggests it wasn't easy or their adolescence. And there's, oh, there's, yeah. and there's a, rep- a repetition uh, in terms of family history going over and over again. But when you catch people uh, and just catch their hand before they fall betre- through the cracks and lift them up and then you see the, the, their potential and you see, you know, new fellow citizens, almost like, almost like new citizens because... They're, they're they're free. They're free of the of the ch- the shackles of addiction. And they're extraordinary story. I mean, I don't think even their addiction. It's not something shame. You know, it's a part of something of them, mm-hmm. which I guess through education or whatever can be reframed. You know, we all have bits that we find difficult to. <laughs> live with yeah. in ourselves and um, like uh, I was recently in Matt Talbot with um, like I said this man called Pat Kern and Gronia introduced me to Pat Kern uh, a few years ago she kind of kept talking about this guy called Pat and um, he had been uh, dealing with addiction and you know just the struggles of life in lots of ways mm. but is the most through the help of the Matt Talbot and his own way of kind of expressing his emotions in a more, um, you know, positive way is the most extraordinary artist, has basically pulled scraps of cardboard and old signs from skips around Valley Firm. That's what he uses as his canvas to express 
his story about what it was like to grow up in that community. And um, RTE last summer did a, a piece on him. I on saw Culture it. I Night. Saw, did you not go around the gallery with him? Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, I yeah. saw that. Yeah, it was amazing. And and I could see you. You were quite moved by what you were looking at. And again, it's just that sense of the another chapter, another go. So moved, and I loved all the stories of that. Mm. You know, not just the nice. It's all. To be honest, I find nice stories quite boring. <laughs> I don't have any interest in them, as you can probably yeah. <laughs> you probably realise by uh, now. Oh, uh, com- <laughs> completely, I was, I've seen some of your movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and also to see Dublin like that, you know, yeah. to see what that life, that beautiful, vibrant life force of Ballyferma is, with all its cracks and rust mm. and wit and. Uh, and to see that translated into a piece of art to a man who has found a way to express something else in himself is, you know, that's just the kind of, that's just a flicker of light, which a place like Matt Talbot helps nurture. And um, yeah, that's what we want to keep doing with them. And I, I grow from being part of that as well. We, yeah. all, we all do. Jesse Buckley talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning. Jesse's new movie, the Oscar nominated Women Talking, will be released here next month. Scientists at NASA recently announced that they were able to extract oxygen from lunar soil, leading to suggestions of another space race. But who owns the moon and who decides what happens to its resources? Claire Byrne spoke this morning to Tim Marshall, whose book, The Future of Geography, How Power and Politics in Space Will Change Our World, deals with this very issue. So can you tell us what does space have that we can use? A whole bunch of stuff, including uh, positive and negative, I would say. I mean, you mentioned that water, and that's one of the keys that will allow us to live on the moon. And and China, with a junior partner, Russia, and America, with a whole host of uh, friends, they both intend to have moon bases uh, in the early 2030s. So from the water, you can also extract hydrogen, and you can get fuel out of that. Uh, In the same region, we're talking about the south pole of the moon here, near the Shackleton crater, uh, there is lithium. Uh, There's all sorts of rare earth metals, all sorts of the the exact metals uh, that we need for some of the renewable technology back on Earth. So all that is is now in play. And the difference between, well, the reason the previous space race stopped is that the Americans won it. Nixon said, what's the point of going back again and again? cut the funding. And there was no real rationale to go back. Suddenly, a few years ago, well, if that stuff's up there, and here's the point about geo, or what is now astropolitics, the economic model is not certain. But if you're a leading power, can you really afford not to be amongst the front runners? Because if all that stuff is there, and if it's going to be so useful, you don't want to get left behind. Mm -hmm. And that is already underway, isn't it? That that race... Very much so. Um, It's basically the two blocks. And and it's another interesting thing how much the contest there mirrors the contests down here, because down here we've got China and Russia as its junior partner, excuse me, uh, in the big sort of global game. And on the other side, you have America. And it's the exact mirror uh, uh, of up there. 
And it, it's not just about the moon, it's also about low Earth orbit and all the satellites because they are quickly becoming critical infrastructure. And, that, and I am arguing in the book that I, I think it won't be too many years, sadly, until some of these satellites are armed. Uh, modern warfare cannot be fought without access to space. So again, it, it is a contested area. Yeah. Uh, there's already 8,000 satellites up there. Yes, It'll be more, more than 20,000 by I, the end of the decade. And you explain in the book the extent to which we have become dependent on those more than 8,000 satellites. Mm. Can you just briefly tell us why that is? Well, it's everything, isn't it? You know, it's um, it's those uh, supermarket deliveries of those lovely vegetables you were just uh, discussing. Now mm -hmm. uh, they won't they won't get there without the satellites. Uh, as I said, war uh, cannot modern warfare cannot happen without them. Shipping lanes, uh, the routes that the aeroplanes take, communications, you name it. It's all integrated, and as I said, that's critical infrastructure, and then it becomes a, an, an issue for the state. And how vulnerable are those satellites as it stands? They're vulnerable in a couple of ways, but they're also guarded in a way. They're vulnerable because already four countries, USA, Russia, China and India, have tested firing a ballistic missile from Earth at a satellite, one of their own, I hasten to add, and blown it up. So they're vulnerable to that. They're also vulnerable to space debris uh, and, and getting knocked out. Where um, they are less vulnerable, and this is a bit weird, but you'll remember MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction of the Nuclear War during the Cold War. There is something similar up there. If, as I argue, they will be armed at some point with, with lasers, because that technology is already here, um, if you start shooting at each other, you will create what's called the Kessler syndrome, where you'll just have a complete band of debris and there won't be any satellites. They'll all have crashed into each other mm -hmm. and that would wreck the world economy. So sort of, it's, a, it's a space version of mutually assured destruction. Now, we have this great big mesh of laws governing the behaviour of companies and individuals and governments here on Earth. <laughs> When it comes to space, yeah. nothing exists. No, well, this is the core of the book, Claire, because the, the treaty, which you can't really enforce it anyway, but it was written in 1967, the Outer Space Treaty. There were no lasers then. So there's nothing to, forbidding you you arming your, your satellites. Um, the, the concept then was that space and the moon is for the common good of humanity and no one can own it. And that's still, people pay lip service to it. But I'll try and be brief on this. The Artemis Accords, which is the American-led bid to get back on the surface of the moon, man and a woman, 2026, they have something in it called safety zones, that once you've established your area that you're going to mine in, you can declare a safety zone. That sounds to me like sovereign territory. Yes. Yes. And we've been there before. I mean, have we learned nothing? And mm. is this how this is going to be split? If I get there first, it's mine. Uh, first come, first first dibs, I, I, I would say, which is, again, why you can't afford to be left behind. I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. There's a lot of fantastic scientific work going on in space and, and medical experiments, which will be of great benefit. Um, I think there'll be potential for solar power uh, being be deflected and beamed down uh, onto Earth. There's, there's a lot of good stuff. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, Ireland is an example it's um, it's not a small country, but it's not a big country, but it punches above its weight because it's inside the European Space Agency. And it's that degree of cooperation amongst the, the ESA that allows European countries to, to be one of the players 
uh, in this in this new world, which is here and now. It, it's not the future. So, you know, we have to hang on to the cooperation, but I'm afraid we're going to go through a, a pretty bumpy period where commerce is driving it. It's a big difference to last time. That was a ideological proving who could, whose system was better. This time, it commerce is driving it with the state playing catch up. And there's no laws. There's no laws that you can apply really yet. Author Tim Marshall talking to Claire Byrne about the future of space exploration. Tim's book, The Future of Geography, How Power and Politics and Space Will Change Our World, is published by Simon & Schuster. Ray Darcy really likes long weekends. And he's not ashamed to admit that he's one of those people who sings along to songs while driving. And a lot of people driving here, there and everywhere. And when you're in the car, if you're not listening to the radio, you might have a Spotify playlist on and you might be playing your favourite songs. Well, they've done research and they've polled 2,000 motorists and 78% sing in the car. There you go. So if you sing in the car, you're in the the majority. Uh, So they have the top 40 songs as sung by people in cars. Uh, ones you'd expect, you know, like this one. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac are featured the most in the top 40. Go Your Own Way, The Chain and Dreams are in the top 40 best songs to sing along to in the car. See, both of those have pace. Don't understand the appeal of this one in the car. Hands, touching hands, reaching out. Oh, I know it's a sing-along, isn't it? Touching me. Keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road. Here we go, together. Yeah, there you go. There's a lot of soft rock in the list. A lot of soft rock. Songs to sing along to in the car. Now, I wouldn't have went for that Bon Jovi one. I would have went for... Shout to the heart And you're too late, darling You give love a bad name Great start and it goes downhill from there. This one's in there as well in the top 40 songs to sing to... Very literal because it's a... This is a... It's a road song. Here we go. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Yeah, darling, go make it happen. Take the world in a loving place. Fire all of the guns and guns and explode into space. I like smoking light. Barbie Wild by Steppenwolf. Top two in the top 40 songs to sing along to in the car. This is a surprise. Number two. Dance, 
that sort of 50 kilometers an hour song, which is which is good. Well within the speed limit. And at number one. Stop me now. I'm having such a good time. I'm having a ball. Stop, stop me now. If you wanna have a good time, just give me a The one we like to sing along to is this one. Buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing in the street, gonna be a big man someday. You got mud on your face, you big disgrace, kicking your can all over the place, singing, We will, we will rock you. And of course, most movies now have the obligatory sing along in the cartoon. It all started with Wayne's World, didn't it? Yeah. Easy come, easy go, will you let me go? Before, before there was Spotify and CDs and all that sort of thing, there used to be cassettes. And whenever you talk to people about going on family journeys in the car, you know, if they were going on holidays to France and bringing the car with them on the ferry, they always remember having one particular cassette and one particular cassette only. So, for example, I know some people, it was a woman's heart. For other people, it was Abba's Greatest Hits. And that was on loop over and over again. And as a result... Some people can't listen to those songs anymore because they're slightly traumatised. You know, you're in the back of the car and you're in your shorts and your brother or sister's skin is touching off you. Skin's touching off me! Skin's touching off me! And then you can't find where you're going. Your parents get a bit upset, a bit frustrated. Everything's a bit tense. But (laughs) Eleanor McAvoy's in the background singing Only a Woman's Heart. Only a Woman's Heart. Ray, going from a list of top ten driving sing-along songs to the long-ago days of cassette tapes, or even just one cassette tape, in the car on this afternoon's Ray Darcy Show. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, Spain yesterday recorded its hottest ever April temperature of a whopping 38.8 degrees The country has been experiencing a heat wave with temperatures 10 to 15 degrees above the norm for this time of year. Journalist Sarah Morris spoke to Claire Byrne this morning from Madrid. How hot is it it expected to get today? Well, in Madrid, it will touch 31 degrees, which for an April is is really unprecedented. Uh, But down in Andalusia, in the southern part, uh, it could go as high as 38 degrees. Uh, uh, You mentioned um, that uh, record that was recorded in Cordoba Airport uh, yesterday. And that's really been one of the hot points uh, during this very, very um, hot and dry period, uh, uh, which comes, of course, on top of that drought uh, with some places not having any rain for about 130 days. Mm-hmm. So how concerned then would you say the government is, both the national government and the regional governments, about the impact of those temperatures on older and younger citizens? 
were very concerned because they remember that uh, very hot summer, the early heat wave from last year. And there have been some estimations uh, from uh, experts at a Madrid university that say there could have been as many as 4,700 excess deaths due to the heat. And many of those people are vulnerable people with a pre-existing condition or elderly people. And so many of, uh, we've heard the Prime Minister, for instance, Pedro Sanchez, as saying that Spain really has to think uh, very hard about its use of water, for instance. And uh, we've seen a regional government uh, down in Andalusia, the, the Conservatives, uh, they've been trying to please farmers who are, are desperate for water for their crops, introducing a new law, uh, which the central government says is irresponsible because it will damage a natural protected UNESCO park area uh, where flamingos and other types of very uh, rare amphibians uh, uh, exist. Uh, so water really becoming a big battleground ahead of the local elections and lots of uh, regional go governments having to roll out emergency measures to try to help people adapt to the heat. Uh, Madrid, for instance, has said that it will open its swimming pools a month earlier from from the 15th of May uh, simply to, to help people cool down. And clearly there must be huge concerns about what is coming in May and June and July and August. So has this led to more conversations around climate change and long-term planning, Sarah? Well, I think the environmentalists and climatologists would say still not enough is, is going on because about three quarters of the country is exposed to desertification already very dry areas with a lack of water, uh, but long-term planning, they say, is lacking. Uh, the Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, promising more will be done. Uh, but uh, really, uh, the environmentalists have talked about the fact that there's almost a month's extra being added to, uh, to the summer in Spain and that uh, the heat waves are getting more intense, they're getting earlier, and that action needs to, to be stepped up. And for consumers, this is already having an impact. You've had a massive increase in the price of olive oil. That's right. And that will help hit world consumers because uh, Spain is basically... Uh, the largest exporter of olive oil. So many people in Ireland will notice that their olive oil comes from Spain and the price in a year has risen by 60%. And so that will hit uh, consumers across Europe, of course fruit and vegetables as well are produced uh, to a large extent in uh, the south of Spain um, all those strawberries vegetables and that of course will be impacted uh, many farmers have just simply not sown crops uh, this year because they say the land is too dry Journalist Sarah Morris talking to Claire Byrne from Spain. Claire also spoke to climatologist and emeritus professor at Maynooth University John Sweeney well, in the short term, what we're seeing is a, a dome, <clears throat> if you like, a very hot African air from Chad, from Mali, from parts of the Sahara, which has extended over much of the Iberian Peninsula at this stage. And that's bringing heat, as, as your previous correspondent said, uh, about a month earlier than the same event almost that happened uh, in May last year. Um, but it's compounded by the fact that a long-running drought 
has also been characteristic of most of Spain for the past five or six years. So the ground is extremely dry. There's no moisture to alleviate some of that heat. And so we're getting, if you like, a combination of circumstances here where the, the hot air is simply... Um, descending onto very dry ground and accentuating the heat at the surface. It's very exceptional heat, um, and of course it's exceptional occurring in April rather than in June and July. And as you, as you heard, it's, it really augurs quite badly for what might happen in the later part of the summer here. We saw last year, for example, two major heat waves happening in Spain in the middle of summer. And we know that the heat waves in Europe last year killed 20,000 people, uh, effectively, the EU have, have confirmed. So um, this is bad news for especially the, the risk of fire in Spain, which was a big problem last year. And uh, this early in the year with dry ground, with heat waves so early, it's going to be very difficult indeed. And it's very difficult <clears throat> as well for farmers who want to go out and plant their seeds at this time of the year, but know the ground that is going to receive those seeds will simply cause them to shrivel up in a matter of weeks. So it's extremely difficult for this real hot spot and focus of where Europe is bearing the brunt of climate change now and in the years to come. And that's more or less what I was going to ask you. What does this say about this part of Europe in the context of global warming and the global average? Well, we know that Europe is uh, warming twice as quickly as the global average for various reasons. And within that, the real focus of, of concern is, is in southern Spain. Um, the reservoirs at the moment in some parts of southern Spain are at 25% of capacity. We know that water is going to become an extremely limiting factor throughout many of the Mediterranean countries. And it really is urgent that we adapt to and that we start looking at how we can manage those resources more effectively in the face of constraints on agriculture, constraints on tourism, constraints on industrial development as well. Um, but the Mediterranean is perhaps the hot spot in Europe for the next few yet few decades, in fact, because effectively what we're seeing is Saharan air during the early summer and, and during the summer moving north on a greater frequency, um, on, on a greater intensity, because it's also coming from places that have warmed up themselves. Mm -hmm. So so this is where the problems really in the short term are going to be seen. And, um, you know, it is a major national problem for Spain to cope with uh, and Portugal as well. Oh, thank goodness it's only affecting Spain and Portugal. Imagine if that sort of climate event was more widespread. We'd really be in trouble then, right? That's climatologist and emeritus professor at Maynooth University, John Sweeney, talking to Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another Playback Daily at the same time on Monday. But for me, thank you for listening and good luck. <laughs>